All right, well, good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you for praying there, Carrie. It's always a privilege to open up God's Word in front of God's people, and um, we are in the first part of Exodus chapter 9 today. Um, You can see on the slide here my sermon title, The Divine Face-Off Between Yahweh and Pharaoh, and I have divine in quotes because we know Pharaoh's not divine, but made for a good title anyways. So for those of you who do not know Maria, my wife, where, where is she? Oh, there you are. Uh, very well. Um, who do not know us very well, we're big hockey fans. And many times during a hockey game, as shown on the slide here, you have what's called a face-off. And this is where the referee in the striped shirt there drops the frozen puck, the frozen rubber puck between these two players, and the players kind of fight and struggle to get control of the puck for their respective teams. Well, in this slide, number 37 is a player named Patrice Bergeron. He just retired last year, one of the best players ever. And in his career, he played in 1,223 games in the National Hockey League. And in those games, he took 25,507 faceoffs and won 14,837 of them for a win percentage of 58.2%. Now, for players in the National Hockey League over their careers taking more than 500 faceoffs, 58.2% is in the top 10 all time. Now, in the Old Testament, a common theme that please keep in mind when you read your Old Testaments is what amounts to essentially a divine face-off between Yahweh and the lowercase g gods of the nations. For the sake of time, I'm only going to uh, mention one example here from the Old Testament of this divine face-off. If you want to, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4. At the beginning of Samuel's ministry, Samuel was a prophet in the early days of the nation of Israel. The Philistines and the Israelites are in battle, and the Israelites suffer a resounding loss in this battle. They lost 34,000 soldiers. But more importantly, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 11 The Ark of God was taken. The Ark of God, or the Ark of the Covenant, as it is sometimes referred to, we're actually going to learn a lot more about that later on in our studies through Exodus, but it was essentially a gold furnishing on which the mercy seat sat in the Holy of Holies, and inside the Ark were the tablets on which the law was written and given to Moses. It was also an indication of God's presence, where God met the Israelites, if you will, through the high priest. But in this battle, to the Israelites' horror, the ark was, it wound up in Gentile, enemy hands. This is terrible. So what did the Philistines do with the ark when they got it? Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So the house of Dagon is a Philistine pagan temple, essentially, and Dagon was their small g god slash idol. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, 
Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of Yahweh. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of Yahweh, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. In this divine face-off, the Philistine small g god Dagon lost. Yahweh's win percentage was 100%. And by the time you get to... 1 Samuel chapter 6, the Philistines want nothing to do with the ark, and the Israelites ultimately get it back. In the book of Exodus, we are also going through what is essentially a divine face-off between Yahweh and Pharaoh. Pharaoh believes he is sovereign over at least all the land of Egypt, and he himself is either a small g god or is at least a representative of the many gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Pharaoh's been resisting the command of Yahweh, which has been delivered by Moses and Aaron, to let my people go that they may serve me. So in this section of Exodus that we're in, chapters 5 through 14, Yahweh is facing off against Pharaoh in the context of these plagues, as we've been calling them. I prefer to call them signs and wonders. I'll explain why in a minute. But in this divine face-off, if you will, between Yahweh and Pharaoh, if Yahweh is sovereign and all-powerful as we know and believe that he is, why does he not just blowtorch Pharaoh and get the sons of Israel out of there? Well, Lance in the last couple of weeks has taught us that the primary goal of these plagues, of these signs, is for Yahweh to make himself known to the participants in the narrative, which is Pharaoh, the Egyptians, Moses, Aaron, the sons of Israel, and also to the readers, which is everyone who's read Exodus through the ages, as well as us. And just to bring us up to speed in the context a little bit, turn back to Exodus if you're still in Samuel. Exodus chapter 5 and verse 1. This is right before Moses and Aaron's initial encounter with Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 5 verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 through 5 This is right before all of the signs and wonders really begin with the Nile turning to blood and the frogs and whatnot. And Exodus chapter 7 verse 3, Yahweh says, he's speaking now to Moses and Aaron, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. 
one more, Exodus chapter 8, verse 22. This is in the announcement of this, uh, to Moses of the sign involving the flies that Moses is then to convey to Pharaoh. Yahweh says to Moses, Exodus chapter 8, verse 22, But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there. And this is, again, the message that Moses is supposed to deliver to Pharaoh in order that you, Pharaoh, may know that I, Yahweh, when I, I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. So Yahweh is not simply eliminating Pharaoh and freeing the sons of Israel because he is... He wants Pharaoh and the Egyptians and Moses and Aaron and the sons of Israel and us, the reader, all to know who he is, that he is sovereign, that he is omnipotent, that he is faithful, that he is just and more. And that ultimately begs the question, why is knowing God so important you know, we heard from our pastor this morning a lot about the attributes of God. He even mentioned Exodus. So thank you for that, Pastor Tom. But why is knowing God so important? A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, on the very first page of the book says, quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He continues, Worship is pure or base or low as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So our view of God, our thoughts of God directly impact the acceptability of our worship to God. And we know Paul in Philippians chapter 3, after he kind of catalogs his autobiography as an Israelite, a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, etc. He gives his pedigree in Judaism and he says, I count all those things lost in view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So knowing God is paramount for us as believers And in the early pages of scripture, in the early chapters of Exodus, Yahweh is acting on behalf of his people and making himself known to the participants in the narrative and to us as readers. So Lance has used this slide the last couple uh, times and I have uh, commandeered it from him. This is just the plagues or the signs and wonders. We've gone through the first four, the blood, the Nile turning to blood, the frogs, the gnats, and the flies. Today we are going to cover the fifth and sixth signs or wonders. But at this point in the narrative, after four signs and wonders have been done before Pharaoh, we need to ask the question, What actions will Yahweh next take to further make himself known and to ultimately compel Pharaoh to let the sons of Israel go? And today in Exodus chapter 9 verses 1 through 12, Moses gives us the two next steps Yahweh takes to make himself known and to compel Pharaoh to let the sons of Israel leave Egypt. We have first the fifth sign, and in your handout you can see it, Yahweh's serious command to Pharaoh and dead livestock. That's verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. And second, you'll also see in your handout the sixth sign, Yahweh's severe consequences for Pharaoh, 
boils with sores. So the theme today is Yahweh continues to make himself known to Pharaoh and all of us. And all the while, Pharaoh continues to harden his response in, uh, to those signs and wonders. So let's get started. The fifth sign, Yahweh's serious command to Pharaoh and dead livestock. We'll pick it up in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 1. We have first the commands, the commands. Verse 1 of Exodus chapter 9. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. And you can see in the handout, there's a few even uh, sub points under the commands. First command in verse 1 is to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. This is sort of the introductory formula that we've become familiar with. Yahweh tells Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh and he tells them what to say. And in the second half of verse 1, we have commands to Pharaoh, to Pharaoh. And now again, keep in mind, this is just Yahweh telling Moses what is going to happen. It's not actually happening yet. Second half of verse 1 Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Yahweh is going to continue speaking to Moses, but in terms of the command that Moses is to issue to Pharaoh, it's the standing command, let my people go that they may serve me. And Moses goes into further details beyond simply the commands here to Moses and Pharaoh. Let's go to verse 2. We have the condition. So Yahweh says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Verse 2, for or because if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them. There is a condition here. It's a condition being stated by Yahweh through Moses to Pharaoh. If you refuse to let my people go or let them go and continue to hold them. One of the reasons I pointed out in the title to the fifth sign, Yahweh's serious command to Pharaoh. They're all serious, but there's an extra level of emphasis here because Yahweh is not just saying, if you refuse to let them go, Stuff's going to happen. He says, if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them. It's almost like saying the same thing in a different way. It's often you see this. It's called parallelism in the Psalms. This is not Hebrew poetry. But it's the same idea repeated for emphasis. So here, Yahweh is telling Moses now, Go to Pharaoh, issue him the command, let my people go that they may serve me, and then give him the condition. Because if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, very emphatic, if you don't do this, third point, the consequences. What will the consequences be if Pharaoh refuses to meet that condition to let the people go? Verse 3, the consequences, behold... The hand of Yahweh will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. So if Pharaoh refuses to let the sons of Israel go here and continues to hold them, Yahweh is going to flex his sovereign omnipotent muscles once again before Pharaoh. And the verse starts, Behold. Pay attention, pay close attention, focus on this. 
The hand of Yahweh, the, the finger of God, as the magician said in an earlier section of Exodus 8, is going to come with supernatural power. The hand of God is going to come with a, it's not just a pestilence. It's a very severe pestilence. It is heavy. It is grievous. It is deadly. And a pestilence is, most of us probably know, but it's like a plague or a very contagious disease. Now, and this is going to be a pestilence that affects livestock. We might be talking about anthrax or something like that. So it is a plague or a disease that is very contagious, and it's not just any pestilence. It's a very severe pestilence that is going to affect, this is now Yahweh telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh, your livestock, Pharaoh, which are in the field. Now, that is, livestock in Egyptian culture was very valuable at a number of levels. Obviously, it could serve as food. It had economic value for sale or trading, but it also had tremendous, livestock had tremendous religious value. I think it was Arnold or Lance a couple weeks ago showed an image of one of the Egyptian gods, and I believe it had the head of a cow. So the, the livestock was, were objects of worship for the Egyptians as well. So this plague, the fact that there's going to be a very severe pestilence is going to be very damaging to Pharaoh in Egypt, economically damaging and religiously damaging. This is going to be devastating. And this is really the only real plague out of the 10, if we want to be technical. So I've been calling them signs and wonders as Yahweh did in Exodus 7.3. But nonetheless, those are the consequences. We have the commands, let my people go that they may serve me. The condition, if you don't let them go and you continue to hold them, there will be consequences. And these consequences are this very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field. Next heading is the contrast. The contrast, this is verse 4. So again, keep in mind, this is still Yahweh telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh. None of this has actually happened yet. And even though Yahweh already said that this severe pestilence was going to come on your livestock, meaning Pharaoh's and Egypt's livestock, there's further emphasis here in verse 4 where we read, but Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. Now, this is not the first distinction we have seen among these signs and wonders in, in connection with the gnats or, or, or the flies, excuse me, in Goshen in Exodus 8.22. Remember, Yahweh said there's not going to be any flies in Goshen around my people. So here in Exodus 9.4, this is actually the second time a distinction is made between the Egyptians and the sons of Israel in terms of being affected by these plagues. So when Yahweh brings this severe pestilence, it's going to be deadly, but it's only going to affect the livestock of Egypt. Now, one point I want to zero in on for a moment. Back in verse 3 of Exodus 9, it says, Yahweh is going to come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field. In the field. So, 
perhaps if the livestock was stable, they weren't out in the field, they would not be affected by this pestilence. And Yahweh will also, excuse me, it may have survived. And this is important because later in the Exodus sign, wonder, plague narratives, we're going to see beasts and livestock show up again. So if all the livestock die here, where are the livestock going to come from in a matter of maybe weeks or a few months down the road if they've all been wiped out here? So I think that distinction is important that it's the livestock in the field. If they're stabled, they may have survived. So nonetheless, here in a show of sovereignty, in a show of omnipotence, in a show of justice towards Pharaoh, Egypt's livestock in the field is going to be devastated, but Yahweh will simultaneously show his grace towards his people in that none of the livestock of the sons of Israel will be touched. So we have the commands to Moses to go speak to Pharaoh, the command to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. We have the condition, if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, we have the consequences, this very severe pestilence, and we have the contrast. This pestilence is only going to affect livestock of Egypt, not livestock of the sons of Israel. And that really ends where Yahweh is telling Moses what to say in a straight narrative here. And as we go on to verse 5, we have the calendar. The calendar, and Moses as the narrator adds, Yahweh will set a definite time saying, tomorrow the Lord or Yahweh will do this thing in the land. So again, this is emphasizing Yahweh's complete control over the situation, his complete sovereignty. He, Moses tells us that Yahweh is going to set a definite time when this severe pestilence shows up. And then Moses tells the reader what Yahweh says. Tomorrow, Yahweh will do this thing in the land. It's going to happen. Yahweh does not make promises that he cannot keep and does not keep. Yahweh is faithful to his words, and he is faithful to the details in those words as well. This is going to happen. And this is now, at the end of verse 5 here, this is the end of Moses telling the reader what's going to happen. And in the prior signs that we've gone through, verse 4, Moses and Aaron at this point would actually go to Pharaoh actually say, let my people go that they may serve me. There might be an indication that Pharaoh said no. Moses here assumes the reader by now after four of these knows all this and just kind of blows right by it and assumes that the reader understands they issued the command to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. And Pharaoh said no. So we get to verse six, we have the consummation, the consummation. So the assumption is they went to Pharaoh, they said, let my people go. Pharaoh said no. And verse six, the consummation. So Yahweh did this thing on the next day and all the livestock of Israel died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died happened just as Yahweh said it would. Yahweh's prophecy and promise was fulfilled. That distinction 
that Yahweh said would be made between Egypt and the sons of Israel was in fact made. And the screws are really starting to tighten on Pharaoh here. I mean, this is bad. This is really bad. All his unstable livestock were just killed throughout the entire land of Egypt. But not believing that none of Israel's livestock could have, you know, avoided this, Pharaoh does something interesting here. Verse 7, first half, the confirmation. The confirmation. So all the livestock in Egypt that are unstable die. The livestock of the sons of Israel, not one dies. And Pharaoh's like, you know what? There's, there's no way that all my livestock died and none of theirs did. So what does he do? Pharaoh sent. Pharaoh sent some people to go investigate this and to see if it was actually true. He sent, verse 7, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. So after Pharaoh now has confirmed all my unstable livestock are dead. Not one of theirs was touched by this pestilence. This severe effect that dead livestock would have on Egypt, food, economic, religious. One might think, maybe, that he would come to his senses. And if put yourself in the position of being a reader of the book of Exodus for the first time. You're reading this and you're like, there's no way he's going to resist again, is there? Second half of verse 7. The callousness. The callousness. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Pharaoh's heart, that word for hardened means to be heavy, to be strengthened, It's resolute. He did not let the sons of Israel go, even though there was a massive display of Yahweh's sovereign, creative power right in front of him. And the consequences were severe. Pharaoh, nonetheless, remained prideful and obstinate, clinging to his depraved notion that he was a god, And that he was sovereign over all matters in the land of Egypt. Or over matters in all the land of Egypt. You know, we can stop here. As believers, we can ask ourselves an application question here. Which is, you know, is there anything that we're sort of being... Is Yahweh trying to have us give him more of his time? More of our time, excuse me. More of our service more of our devotion, and, and, and we're resistant. There are parts of our life we don't want to give up, even though we're almost in that face-off with Yahweh. Don't forget, Yahweh's win percentage in those face-offs is 100%. So if there's a part of your life, if there's a part of my life where I'm resisting giving it to Yahweh to serve him and be devoted to him, please don't be like Pharaoh and be obstinate and harden your heart Soften your heart to Yahweh and serve him. He is the sovereign, omnipotent God of the universe. So that is the fifth sign. Yahweh's serious command to Pharaoh and dead livestock. Back to our slide. 
we have now covered all of the five plagues in the left column and we are now moving on to the right column and we are in now looking at the sixth sign, if you will, Yahweh's severe consequences for Pharaoh boils with sores. And I say severe because Yahweh's really stepping up the intensity here. And it's not just sort of things happening in a river or some flies buzzing around or maybe some, a lot of frogs uh, being around. These are starting to hit people in where it really matters, economically, religiously, and now it's going to hit their bodies too. So let's look at the sixth sign, Yahweh's severe consequences for Pharaoh, boils with sores. First heading is the prophecy, and we'll pick this up in verse 8. Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. So now Moses is the narrator's completely dispensing with that message from Yahweh to Pharaoh to let my people go that they may serve me. Moses is now as narrator just launching right into the the prophecy of the sign that's going to come when Pharaoh resists. I mean, by now the reader, we know the pattern. So, and Yahweh tells Moses and Aaron, take for yourself handfuls of soot. Soot is like powdery ash, like almost like from an incinerator. Things have been burned up and there's just this powdery, ashy soot left over. He says, take for, for, take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln. Now, a kiln is an interesting, uh, interesting here because what did the Israelites use when they were making bricks as slaves for Pharaoh? They used kilns. So it's reminding the reader that they're, they're just, you know, sort of on the brink of coming out of that slavery. But secondly, what does a kiln do? When you put pottery or mortar into a kiln, what does it do? It hardens it. What's going on with Pharaoh's heart? It's being hardened. So... I think the kiln reference here is, is to point, to remind the reader of what the sons of Israel used to make bricks, and it's a metaphor for what was going on in Pharaoh's heart. So take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. Throw that soot toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. Verse 9, continuing on with the prophecy, it, the soot, will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So in Moses now uh, conveying Yahweh's statement about what to do here uh, with the sixth sign, he says the soot will become fine dust and it will become Boils breaking out with sores. That word will become in Hebrew is also used in the Genesis 1 creation account. So this is speaking of a supernatural creative act of Yahweh here where Moses and Aaron grab handfuls of soot. Moses is going to throw it up in the air in front of Pharaoh. And that soot, those little handfuls of soot is going to cover all the land of Egypt in fine dust and it will become boils breaking out 
with sores. This is a supernatural creative act of Yahweh here once again. And notice in verse 9, fine dust over all the land of Egypt and boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. That is Pharaoh's, sort of the domain of Pharaoh's perceived sovereignty, all the land of Egypt. And you see it repeated here and there in these plague narratives. So keep that in mind as well. This is going to be boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. Now, this is the part I've been looking forward to. I get to talk about what boils are. So I know when Rich Dewey was here, he would also often give a little medical lesson maybe or a biology lesson. I happen to have a biology background. What a boil actually is, is an infection of a hair follicle. So we have bacteria on our skins. It's standard, Staphylococcus aureus. It's all over us. And when we get a little scratch or a scrape, sometimes that bacteria will get into a hair follicle and infect it. And for those of us who have had boils, they are painful, they get hot, they sometimes ooze, they are, you know, they're not really fun. I am my, the next slide is not going to be an image from Dr. Pimple Popper, so don't worry. Um, but just to even get a feel for the severity of the boils, turn to the book of Job, right before Psalms, the book of Job, Job chapter 2. So we know that the Lord allowed Satan to afflict Job. You know, his, his family was, was killed. He lost all his possessions. And Satan then goes, and Job remained faithful. Satan then goes back to the Lord and says, well, that, that wasn't good enough. I need more. The Lord says, okay, well, you can affect Job's body, but you're not going to be allowed to kill him. So pick it up in Job chapter 2, verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And if you drop down to verse 11 now, now when Job's three friends heard of all of this adversity that had come upon Job, they each one came from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come sympathize with Job and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize Job, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. They then sat down on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. So Job's boils from head to toe, they were so severe, his friends didn't even recognize him at first. And they were so severe, they saw his pain and they were wailing and mourning and grieving with Job. That's how bad these boils can be. Extremely painful and, and just really brutal. So and these boils, back to Exodus chapter 9, are going to be on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. And certainly by implication, they are not going to affect those of the sons of Israel. So 
we have the prophecy. That is Yahweh saying what to do the next time you go encounter Pharaoh. Take for yourself handfuls of soot from a kiln, throw it into the sky. It'll become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. So after the prophecy, verse 10, we have the performance, the performance. So they, Moses and Aaron, took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it, threw the soot toward the sky and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. Moses and Aaron faithfully obey Yahweh's instructions and perform the action Yahweh indicated for them to perform. They took soot from the kiln. They stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw that soot toward the sky and that soot in a supernatural creative act of Yahweh became boils breaking out with sores on the Egyptians. Exact fulfillment in all its details. Again, Yahweh's faithfulness to his own words. One point in verse 10 where it says, they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh. That refers to a literal standing in the presence of as much as I'm standing in your presence right now, but it also refers to taking a stand against someone. So they're not there on Pharaoh's side. They are standing before him and they are taking a stand against him as well. So we'll come back to that in a moment, but One thing that I think is also really important from an application standpoint here is that Aaron and Moses precisely obeyed Yahweh's instructions. And it's so important for us to precisely obey Yahweh's instructions as he commands us, as he says it in his word. Not as we want to do it, not as maybe we adjust it a little bit to make it easier but as he commands in the scriptures. It is so important to obey Yahweh in the details. And a failure to obey Yahweh in the details can have very serious consequences. Our own Moses here, Numbers chapter 20. The Israelites are grumbling. We don't have any water. You know, this is not the first time they grumbled either. And Exodus chapter, uh, excuse me, Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. So the Israelites are grumbling. They don't have water. And here is what Yahweh says to Moses. Take the rod, that staff of God that we became acquainted with here in Exodus. Take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before Yahweh just as he had commanded him and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and he said to them, this is Moses speaking to the assembly, listen now you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Moses was Tired of the Israelites grumbling so often. You rebels. He's not really happy here. Then Moses lifted his hand. Did he speak to the rock? No. He struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beast drank. uh, Numbers chapter 20 verse 12. But... 
Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So that failure to obey Yahweh in the details had severe, serious consequences for Moses. Remember what happened to Moses when the sons of Israel were ready to cross the Jordan into the promised land. Yahweh had Moses hike to the top of a hill and made him look at the promised land, but he couldn't go in to the promised land. That was the consequences for this failure here to obey Yahweh in the details. So folks, I encourage you all, when it comes to obedience, when there's a clear command of Scripture, obey Yahweh in the details. So we have the prophecy and we have the performance. Next, verse 11, we have the power. So Moses, took the, Moses and Aaron took the soot from a kiln. They stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw the soot toward the sky. It became boils breaking out with sores on man. The power, verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Well, our good buddies, the magicians, are back. And remember a moment ago I mentioned the standing before Pharaoh. It's a literal standing, but it's also a stand, taking a stand against. Well, here the magicians could not stand before Moses. It may be that their boils were, had so debilitated them that they literally were having difficulty standing up, but certainly at this point, they could not take a stand against Moses and ultimately Yahweh. They, they had nothing. They were toast. They had no opposition whatsoever to Moses and to Yahweh with these boils. Going back to our hockey analogy, they didn't even get into the face-off circle to try to take the face-off. They just, they caved. They were done. They had boils all over them. These guys were the, the, look in your NASB if you have that margin for verse 11. The translation for magicians can also be soothsayer priests. These were soothsayer, sorcerer, priest, magician, healers. This was what they were supposed to do is be able to heal these kind of things. Uh Uh-uh. They had boils all over them, just as the rest of the Egyptians. They had nothing. Yahweh wins these face-offs every time. And the question is, why do the magicians actually come back here? I think it is to further emphasize their complete impotence, the impotence of the Egyptian religious system in the face of Yahweh's power. Pharaoh, excuse me, turned to these magicians for, you know, they were his excuse for not letting the sons of Israel go. Remember, they sort of pseudo-replicated the Nile turning to blood. They made some part of a little tributary turn red. You know, maybe they, got, they collected some frogs and threw them out in a small area. Oh, we did it too. And Yahweh said, see, all this is from Moses and Aaron is magic. It's not the divine hand of Yahweh. But that's not the case. We know it's not the case. These magicians were frauds. 
They were used trickery or sorcery or what have you. And now Pharaoh's excuse, if you will, for not allowing the sons of Israel to go, they've even caved in. So this is telling Pharaoh and everyone, Yahweh is sovereign. The magicians, the Egyptian religious system, Pharaoh himself are no match for Yahweh. They are all impotent, not omnipotent. Yahweh wins that face off every time. And that is our sovereign God, the the hymn Tom and Sheila wrote. Our sovereign God, our omnipotent God, to whom we belong. I'm not done yet. Um, (laughs) And the God whom we serve. So we have under the sixth sign, the prophecy, the performance, the demonstration of Yahweh's power in the face of the impotence of these magicians and the Egyptian religious system. And lastly, we have the promise and the punishment. The promise and the punishment, verse 12 of Exodus 9. And Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to him, just as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. So we, I, I use the promise here because in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, and also in Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, Yahweh said... He will harden Pharaoh's heart. Here, he actually does it for the first time. So Yahweh, again, faithful to his word, keeps his promises. Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart for the first time. But this is also punishment because this is Yahweh judicially hardening Pharaoh's heart. We know Pharaoh had hardened his own heart several times. In Exodus 8.15, it says, he hardened his own heart. Exodus 8.32, Pharaoh hardened his own heart this time also. So we know Pharaoh hardened his own heart several times. And now Yahweh, after giving Pharaoh all these chances to, to repent, and acknowledge Yahweh as the sovereign God of the universe and let the sons of Israel go. He says, no. So Yahweh kept his promise and he punishes Pharaoh by hardening his heart. His heart is now in that state permanently. One commentator, McKay, says, the man, Pharaoh, who has repeatedly persisted in his stubbornness is now deprived of the ability to do anything else. So Pharaoh is now not going to be able to repent or soften his heart. We're just going to be in the land of compulsion now, as Yahweh has also said in other parts of Exodus uh, 3.19 and 6.1. So why is it that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart here? Well, in Exodus 7, 3, he told us, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and let Pharaoh and all of us know who I am and so that ultimately Pharaoh will be compelled to let the people go. So that is the promise and the punishment. And that is the sixth sign, severe consequences for Pharaoh, boils with sores. If any of you wanted pictures of actual boils, I apologize. I was dissuaded from doing that by many people. In conclusion, 
Yahweh's win percentage in face-offs with these small g gods of the nations is far better than one of the best face-off players of all time. It's in, in the National Hockey League. Far better than 58.2%. Pharaoh, his magicians, the Philistines, as we saw in 1 Samuel 4, and elsewhere in the Old Testament find that Yahweh's face-off win percentage is 100%. Who found out that Yahweh's face-off win percentage was 100% at the cross? Satan did. So our God wins all the time. It is as, as the song says, what other name remains undefeated? Only a holy God. And with that 100% win percentage, Psalm 2, when the kings of the earth take their stand against Yahweh, what does Yahweh do? He sits in the heavens and laughs. He scoffs at them. And through these signs and wonders in Egypt, Yahweh is showing himself to us, to all of us. He is showing us who he is. He is showing us that he is. And turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles 29. I'll give everybody a a few minutes to get there. First, first, I'm kidding. We don't find ourselves in Chronicles that often. First Chronicles chapter 29 verse 10. I think this really summarizes who Yahweh has revealed himself to be thus far in the plagues narrative in Exodus and who our God is. Exodus, or excuse me, 1 Chronicles 29. This is David. David is about to die. His son Solomon is going to build the temple in Jerusalem. David was involved in that, in that planning process but was not allowed to build the temple because he was a man of war and had blood on his hands, remember? But he is now with the assembly as this planning is getting, coming to completion. Verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 29. So David blessed Yahweh in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Yahweh, God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Yahweh, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. I mean, greatness, power, glory, victory, majesty, dominion. Yahweh is the sovereign, supreme God of the universe, and he is showing Pharaoh that. He is showing us that in this section of Exodus that we are in. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Just a couple points of application. Make knowing Yahweh a priority in your life. Make knowing Yahweh a priority in your life. We are seeing that here as we go through Exodus. That is his purpose. But let's make it a priority in our lives. Don't resist Yahweh's 
efforts to get your attention, to bring about some change in your life, whether it's salvation change, conversion, or it's some area of your life that needs, where you need to grow. Don't resist Yahweh's efforts to bring that about. And lastly, as I mentioned earlier, obey Yahweh in the details he has revealed in his word. For anyone who is with us here today who does not have a saving relationship with Yahweh, the sovereign God of the universe, through his son, Jesus Christ, understand this. You are following after small g gods in your life, whether it's money or property or prestige or pleasure, other idols, other religions. Understand, as with Pharaoh, Yahweh's face-off percentage against all those things is 100%. He will not share his glory with another. So friend, unlike Yahweh, don't repeatedly harden your heart against God. Soften your heart, turn towards God in repentance, and bow the knee to him, to Jesus Christ. Place your faith and trust in Christ and in his work on the cross as the only way you can be made right with God and be saved and have forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we love you. We, we love seeing you put yourself on display. We love how you just literally make a mockery of these small G gods of the nations, Pharaoh, Dagon, others. And you even clear stuff out of the way that is inanimate, but still a God. Things like money, property, and prestige that we can turn our hearts to and worship from time to time. Lord, we, I pray that we all would have soft hearts and acknowledge you as the sovereign, supreme, omnipotent, faithful, but also loving and gracious God of the universe. Lord, that we would trust in you, that we would obey you in the details. And Lord, that our lives would look like people who live that way, submitted to you, obedient to you, rejoicing in you as David did in his prayer, living for your glory, and that that would be a testimony to those around us, especially as we come to this time of year with the Christmas season and whatnot, Lord. So use us, give us resolute hearts to be obedient to you, not hardened towards you, and may we live for your glory. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.